Welcome to the Les Spellman Podcast, where we redefine how athletes develop speed by giving them the tools to play faster. I first found out about you, uh, I think through Chris Corfist, um, on one of the blogs. I, I talked about it at our at the presentation in Chicago. And I, I saw this thing like feed the cats, feed the cats, record rank and publish. And I'm like, what is this? And I was like, oh wow, it's a teacher. Oh wow, this is this is high level stuff. Oh wow, this is like and I just finished reading all the Charlie Francis stuff and I just reading um started understanding um like high intensity stuff and and the nervous system and started diving in. And um I was a fan a long, long time before we ever connected and met. And when you asked me to speak at your uh, TFC, I was like, whoa, like that's, <laughs> this is like the biggest, the biggest thing I've ever been asked to do. And like, it, and, and the reason why is like, I've, I've been asked to speak at NSCA and kind of everywhere, but it, it's somebody, you're somebody that had a big influence on who I became as a coach. And, um, you know, that's huge for me. Like there's, there's only a few people I could say really had a major impact and, and and you know who those guys are. So yeah, I just appreciate you coming on. Yeah, well, thank you. And you, you mentioned Charlie Francis. Um, uh, I wasn't even aware of Charlie Francis besides you know the the stuff you read in the newspapers about you know the the problems he had um, with the great sprinter and steroids and all that stuff. And yeah. uh, um, but when people heard what I was saying they they said man a lot of your stuff really sounds like charlie francis right and i'm like well hell i'm gonna have to read about this guy yeah and uh and we do have a lot of similar things but that's kind of fun because my stuff really came from nowhere i had no mentors i i didn't learn my stuff from reading i i learned my stuff from just doing it like at the high school level in obscurity and it's fun to see people like you and brian kula Charlie Francis, uh, Chris Corfus, uh, Dr. Ken Clark, all these guys that um, that came up without me knowing them at all, and we all kind of came to the same conclusions. Yeah, that's amazing. It, it kind of reminds me how, like, at, at one point in history, there's pyramids that kind of sprouted up all across the world. And it's like, it, you know, just people come to the same conclusions around the same times. And if you look at just the history of like how long sprint coaching has been around it. it. It's a blip. It's not like we're not talking like thousands and thousands and thousands of years. We're talking about um, like it's, it's pretty, it's relatively new, but what, on that note, like I know you've coached at the high school level for a while. Um, how did you come up with everything that you're doing now? Like I, I've seen your 10 principles. I've seen all that. Uh, did you have any major influences or was it trial and error? Well, I had major influences uh, just because my father was a basketball coach for 47 years, high school and college, 44 of those 47, he was a head coach. So Man. he was a decision maker. He was one of those old school guys that modeled his coaching from, you know, the greats like Lombardi and Bob Knight and blah, blah, blah. And then he evolved into being more of a player's coach. I think he ended up being more of a Joe Madden type of coach, uh, the, the great baseball coach. Um, and, and so I had him, then my all three of my mom's brothers played college football, and two of them became Hall of Fame football coaches, and they were those hard-nosed autocrats as well. Um, so I have that coaching, you know, like DNA in me. But it wasn't until um, I realized that that track kind of sucked, you know, and, and, and that we put up with it. Um, I, I just tweeted a thing from Mark Manson today that said, what if you were told something and you believed it for the rest of your life? Yeah. And I thought, gosh, you know, that's, that's really powerful because we have a lot of problems in this country because people latch on to a belief and then just defend it for the rest of their life. Right. And so when I was 40 years old, and I'm really proud of this, that when I was 40 years old, I decided to make track unsuck, yeah. you know, that, that we were going to not train the middle anymore. Like I was taught, I was taught train the middle. So focus on the 400, move slow guys up to the longer races, move faster guys. They're all genetic, right? Down to the, down mm -hmm. to the uh, shorter races. And that's how you become a great track team. Yeah. And then just run them to death every day. Just <laughs> run them to death. Make them tired. And so, yeah, just make them tired. And so, so I came up with like, well, wait a minute. What if I said tired was the enemy? 
And of course, Lombardi said, fatigue makes cowards of us all. So that kind of goes along with my idea. It's like, uh, we don't want to be soft. We want to be fast. Fast people are not soft. And so instead of focusing on the 400 meters, I started focusing on the 40-yard dash. And I thought I was selling out, but as I recorded, ranked, and published times every damn day over years and years and years, I figured out that, that damn, you know, this is a good way to train speed. Yeah. And the other way was a bad way. But yet, as you and I both know, there's still a lot of defenders of the old belief. And why do you think that is? Like, why do you think people defend it so so hard? Is it an identity thing or? I think it's really hard to evolve. Really hard. I go back to my dad. I One of the proudest things I am of my dad was that he, uh, he hated the two guys at the 68 Olympics that raised their fist. Right. He thought it was un-American and disrespectful. Right. He hated uh, Cassius Clay right. for being uh, a conscious, conscientious objector to the war in Vietnam. And, you know, he thought he should have gone to prison for it. And 20 years later, those people were his heroes. Man. He evolved. He, he stopped defending the beliefs that he learned as a young man. And I, I think that's unique and an important story because, because I read the other day that we spend the first 20 years of our life creating a model of who we are. Yep. And the rest of our life defending it. Interesting. You said 28. And, excuse me? You said 28 years or 20 years? No, uh, the first 20 years. 20 years. I, I think yeah. it could be, I think it could be the first 30. Yeah. You know, I could see that, the first 30 for sure. You know, yeah. I, it kills me when I hear that somebody was uh, 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 born a Republican. <laughs> I'm like, how are you born a Republican? Dang. Like, is that in your DNA? Yeah. No, that's what you were told. And that's, what you lived for the first 20 years and then you spend the rest of your life defending everything republican and so it's it's and so i think it's hard to change it's really hard and uh um when when we get challenged um like my eighth grade son challenged me when he said track sucks um we have a tendency to fight and and instead of fighting sometimes we need to evolve yeah, no, I love that. And and where would you like if you look back when you first started coaching, like the first two three years, like what did that look like, and then what does it look like now in comparison to that? <laughs> oh, I, I've heard this story, so yeah. oh, it's it's embarrassing as hell. Um, you know, like we would uh, start off basketball. So I was a head basketball coach at the age of twenty three, the youngest in the state of Illinois, and uh, we would start our season with hell week <laughs> we'd practice two hours like from 5 30 to 7 30 in the morning town and then we'd pr- come back for three hours in the afternoon sounds like my experience yep no i mean like and we called it hell week and and then celebrated it and i i thought it was such a bonding experience having like a chili dinner at the end of hell week you know like really hot chili you know like <laughs> going along with the idea of hell yeah and um and we we talked about how nobody worked harder that week than we did, nobody. And that was that was American sports mm-hmm. that we are going to teach kids how to work hard because that's a valuable trait. And then we're also going to teach kids to be compliant because that's a valuable trait. So I'm going to be a real mean taskmaster and autocrat to my basketball team and we're going to take pride in working harder than anybody else. What's missing from that formula is performance. Man. But seemingly, you know, like performance, I guess wasn't important. Somehow that magically those two things would turn into performance. And here's, I say that dumb is undefeated against dumber. And I like that. If, if my team went through stupid training, way too much, uh, ridiculous, awful training, but somebody else tried to do more, we might still win. Man. And probably will. 
So I, I think that that happens in all sports, in all training, that no matter what you do as a coach, you will have enough positive results that you can defend your system. Right. Right. So do you, do you feel like we're behind in the speed world? Like, I know you you changed a lot since that that part. Like, and then when you changed, did you realize like, dang, like we're, we're very behind in, in the track speed or even the performance world as a whole? Yes. I, I, I say that, um, that feed the cats is revolutionary, but it should not be revolutionary. It just makes, I mean, anybody that I have an hour or two with, they start leaning in. They're like, wait, this stuff makes way too much sense. I mean, I can convert people. I'm, I'm a conversion guy. And, <laughs> is that why know, we had TFC in the, in the church? Amen, <laughs> <laughs> brother. Yeah, yeah. yeah it, it is, it is a, um, it, it is kind of churchy. It is kind of because, and, and this is why it's churchy to me, is because like kids at the high school level get one opportunity to go through what they get to go through. And if you're creating a miserable experience for them, I just think it's wrong. You know, it, it, and a positive experience, a joyful experience is, is just so right. And then when we convert coaches into the less is more, uh, a more simple approach, a more joyful approach, uh, they coach forever. Uh-huh. Like I'm my 42nd year and I swear to God, I'm, I'm not, this is not hyperbole. I feel like I'm 30 years old coaching mm. and I feel like I enjoy coaching more than I did back in my hard boiled autocrat days of being a taskmaster and, and fighting my guys every single night and then going home and you, you have a hard time going home and being normal right. after yep. doing that. So, so yeah, I think we're behind and I think it goes right back to that thing about beliefs that that we are so, I say that tradition is a tribe. And being tribal is not a choice that you and I make. Yeah. Uh, it is in our DNA. It is in our DNA to want to belong to a family. When somebody says, I'm a family man, I'm like, of course you are. It's in your DNA. Uh, if somebody says, hey, I'm a, I'm a team guy. Of course you are. It's because cavemen survived by being team guys. Yeah. Here, here's a weird thing that a lot of people don't realize is that the other thing that's in our DNA is status. We want to win. We want to be better than other people. We want our tribe to be better than other tribes. If you think about the best sports teams, they got them both going on. Uh-huh. You know, they, they got the team thing going on. And then they want to beat other teams. Yeah. And they even compete internally against each other. But if you have one going on without the other, you're a train wreck. So so I really believe it's it's DNA, the same thing that causes us to be stubborn and latch on to beliefs um, is tribal. And I it's in our DNA. But as soon as we realize that that we're tribal, you know, like idiots sometimes then sometimes we can at least listen to other people and evolve. How did, how did you build that culture, feed the cats? And like, I, I mean, when I was at TFC, I was impressed, like not, not only just like the way that it was set up, but how many coaches were there and how many coaches have been doing it. I mean, some coaches 10 plus years, like how did you build that culture? You know, I mean, looking back, it was kind of tribal that when people come to a TFC, they feel like they're part of our group. And I think a lot of it has to do with the speakers we invite. Yeah. Guys like you and Brian Kula and Dr. Ken Clark and and Chris Corfist and Cal Dietz and Dan Fichter. All these guys are the most giving coaches I've ever seen. Right. And none of them walk in like they are a rock star, even mm-hmm. though some of them are. Uh, there are definitely rock stars in our group. But they don't carry themselves like that. They, they are men of the people and all that. So, so there is people say that feed the cats is a cult. And, and I think it was uh, Drew or our, our good friend, Zoo, Drew, who said that every business should have a cult like following, um, a loyal following. Drew a, said a, that. A, I like that. Don't you like that? <laughs> Drew said that. He yeah. said every business should have a cult like following. Smarter than he looks, and, huh? 
Oh, he is. He is so <laughs> much smart. He, yes. <laughs> uh, I love Drew. Yeah. Um, so, so yeah, that, that cult-like following, um, I used to object to it, you know, when people downgrade us. But now it's like, oh, we are kind of a cult-like group. We, we really believe in some principles that are great for kids and great for coaches, and we're very performance-based. So that culture, I think, grew um, somewhat organically. It was some, somewhat tribal. But also, the years that took off, the last 10 years, were the years where I could write something and not ask somebody else to publish it for me. It's a major change in the human existence. When a chemistry teacher, a nobody from Plainfield, Illinois, um, could write an article about football, even though he'd never been a head football coach ever in his life, and could literally start to change the football world. Or Twitter, once again, you know, I, I started off on Twitter when I thought it was kind of dumb. It was like, okay, I'm going for dinner. It was kind of like, okay, this is what I'm doing right now. Like, you don't need to tell everybody what you're doing right now. But it's evolved into something where we share information, where we share ideas, we share uh, studies and, 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 and our writings and all that stuff. So so in, in 10 years, um, as I said, nobody like me has grown to have 26,000 people read my stuff every day. Yeah. And and so those things allow us to grow. And then, of course, exactly 10 years ago, I meet Chris Gorfist. And it was one of those things where I, I went to a presentation he did. And I'm like, oh, my God, this guy is kind of like me. I'm like, there, there's somebody in the world that is kind of crazy and has crazy ideas like me. And so so we... I started going to his basement and just sitting and watching him work and asking him questions once in a while. And here now we've become uh, very good friends. That's amazing. 10 years ago, Chris Corfe's basement. If you guys only had a GoPro or camera or something, and I, would, I would love to see those conversations and like what came out of that. Um, well, you know what's weird is that uh, I would sit and watch quietly. If you ever see Chris work, he's kind of an introverted worker and and he'll do stuff and i think i've been good for him because i will stop him and say why'd you do that and if he doesn't give me a satisfactory answer i follow up i say i don't understand damn so so you're doing this to do what and and so he will uh he will answer my questions eventually perfectly uh but you would have been surprised at how quiet we were back and forth Interesting. For for most of that time, it was just kind of like absorbing it, and and then then as we got to be closer friends, we started eating breakfast together once a month or so, and uh, we we would learn a lot from each other. What's the what's the biggest thing you learned from Chris? Well, first of all, it's inspirational. I I don't know when he sleeps. <laughs> like like literally. Uh, uh, like I'll be all excited. I read some obscure book, and and I got to tell Chris at breakfast. And so I told Chris. He goes, "Oh yeah, that was good." I'm like, "How do you read every book I've ever read? You've read every book I've ever read, and yeah. like a hundred more, and you're working eight hours a day as a school teacher, and you're training athletes six hours after that. How do you find time wow. to do all these things?" So it's really inspirational. He never slows down. He always gives. Um, he's always welcoming. Like when somebody goes to visit him, you just walk in his through his garage. You open the door and try to avoid his two African mastiffs that are both 180 pounds or something, and they have heads twice the size of a human. Yeah. And you try to not get eaten by the two dogs, and then you go down to his basement and you say, hey, what's up? You know, not much. You know, and he's working with, couple guys from the chicago bears or whatever in his basement and and so um so yeah it's it's he is one of the most bizarre and strange mad scientists i've ever uh known um and we learn things from i think weird strange people you know like the middle of the road people are kind of bland you know they they try to stay between the lines chris corpus has never stayed between the lines ever 
and you know the whole RPR thing. Heck, that happened about ten years ago too. Yeah, deactivated. Yeah, I remember. And so all these different things like swerved into my lane about the same time. Yeah, I love it. Well, we should probably dive into speed. We keep talking about right. everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah but um, no, it's super interesting because I I wanted to know. Like I've always had had those questions and backgrounds because I was kind of like a fan just watching you guys go back and forth on message boards and then articles and then you know both you guys just kind of grew into like more of a you know Twitter I think I feel like Twitter helped our industry a little bit it's oh yeah it's fun because you get to see some battles on there but you also get to see a lot of sharing of information from some good people um, but talk to me about your philosophy about developing speed um, like. I, I, I've never seen so many Illinois white athletic guys run 10, 9, 10, 8. I'm like, how, okay, like, how is this possible? So talk to me about that a little bit. Yeah, you, you say about, you know, like the look. I mean, when I first met Corfus was around 2012, and he had like the fastest four by one team in the state. And they not were, not only were all four of them white, but they looked like they belonged on the debate club. You know, or, or in the choir, yeah. they, they did not. You, you know, there's a certain look. Yeah. Uh, I mean, at one time, I, I think the the feeling in at least in Illinois was if you didn't have you know four guys that look like future Olympians, um, you could not run well in the four by one or you know in the sprint relays at all. So so uh, so so I think it's really important that that myth was broken. So speed training to me is 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 decomplexifying things mm -hmm. that you and I both know that we could probably together come up with a hundred different things about max speed mechanics alone. Right. And there are people out there that do that for a living. Right. But that's not I I think those people have a hard time coaching. 15 year olds right or 16 year olds for sure uh, i would argue they might even have a hard time coaching elites yeah because i call them complexifiers whereas like i am the opposite i'm a proud essentialist a proud simplifier so when, when i when i look at uh max speed mechanics i mean i just look at three things are they running tall now corpus says they need to run with the heart you know like that you don't want to be too tall, but that's kind of complex, you know. And and I I can see that when if you're too tall, you're kind of back on your haunches a little bit. But we want to run with good posture. We don't want to run bent over. We don't want to run leaning back. So generally speaking, run tall. And then secondly, we want to be loose enough in our shoulders to have our hand on the backstroke past the hips mm -hmm. by about a foot. Uh, people who run too much, and I say there's a difference between running and sprinting, and the distance coaches damn near kill our sport because they think that running is running. And I say, no, running and sprinting are two different things. Distance guys will run what I call like T-Rex. They run with little arms in front of their body. Sprinters run with big arms that lengthen on the downstroke and cross their hips i was actually driving carl lewis to a tfc presentation uh several years ago i took five wrong turns because i was very very nervous um <laughs> but we were talking about the backstroke and he says elbow to this guy elbow to this guy so i'll never forget that because carl lewis said it but if your hand goes past your hips by 12 inches your elbow will go towards the sky and the important thing there is that if that happens, your shoulder stretches and Stretch there is a reflex action springing your shoulder forward, your arm forward, which does not take any energy. That, that stretch reflex is an elastic, energy-free movement. So, so that's the second thing. Posture, second thing. Arms, third thing is we want to be big in front, just big in front. Now, some guys are big in front and they think I mean high knees. Actually, it's more than that. It's the knee in front with the foot somewhere underneath it. Yeah. That if, if, 
really young athletes, when they skip, when they do high knees, when they sprint, somehow the foot lags behind the knee. It stays behind. And if you're really going to hit the foot with a downward, I think uh, Ken Clark, it's complex because tangential force. Yeah, tangential force. Yeah. Yeah. Or, no. or, or uh, Jonas talks about whipping from the hip. Yeah. Uh, that that if you're going to hit at the right angle, the foot cannot. The foot must go past the hips. Yeah. You, you have to have the foot and knee out in front of the body. Yeah, yeah. So, if I'm going to do just three things, I say run tall, hands past the hips, big in front. And if I want to say just one thing, run like Carl. And then, yeah. but, but but as you know, there are complexifiers out there who argue with me and say, that's way too simple. That's way, we should not be teaching towards a norm. We should take every guy and accentuate what he does well and accept what he does kind of quirky and blah, 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 blah. And, you know, like look at Andre DeGrasse. He had one straight arm, but he did that because of, anti-rotational blah 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 you know stuff i don't even understand uh, but they're not teaching the general population how to sprint correct you can't teach you have outliers you have at the top you definitely have outliers right. at the top and people will say well well bolt did this so you should do this well bolt six foot five and yes. had extremely long femurs like it you know yeah definitely i hear you on that i if i coached degrasse and he ran 9.75 at USC, and then he signed with me. I don't think I would have changed him either. No. And it might be too I late mean, to make those changes. Absolutely. And some of those changes or some of those quirky things are so built into his success that it is it is smart to accept those things. But don't tell me that a kid that that runs horribly or terrible or quirky, whatever he does, uh, runs like T-Rex arms, that I should be like trying to accept those things with a 14 or 15 <laughs> right. or 17 year old. That runs no, 12 flat. Going, yeah, <laughs> it's like, come on. We're yeah. gonna teach towards the norm. And then, and then yeah, so so we do those things. So, so overall, I'm a simplifier. Um, I teach towards the norm and we sprint a lot. How often do you sprint? We sprint two times minimum a week, mm -hmm. maximum three. Mm -hmm. Now, I think we need to define sprinting. Sprinting is, this is one of my sayings, how do you train a cat? You sprint as fast as possible, which means you're wearing spikes, you're on a hard surface, and you're timing. So, so that's number one. You sprint as fast as possible, as often as possible. That means three or four times in a session and two or three sessions a week. Uh -huh. That's as often as possible. And the third thing is staying as fresh as possible. Meaning that we never sprint tired, depressed, or sore. So, so all those things have to work. And it's interesting where I pirated that statement. I read a book. I'm proud that I read it called <laughs> squat every day and, and, and you're a reader like I am. You yep. might be the type of guy that would read that book. Definitely. And in that book, it said squat as heavy as possible, as often as possible, staying as fresh as possible. And even though I didn't really agree with that about squatting, I, I was able to translate that into a great slide in my presentations. Yeah, it's completely different than what we've been taught is that a nervous system can't handle more than two squat sessions a week and, and all this. But if you can microdose it, um, then you can then you can achieve that. That's a microdosing is huge. And see, this is what people really don't understand about feed the cats. Charlie Francis believed, same as me, came to his own conclusions that you, you can only sprint two or three times a week. He, he totally understood that. But then the question comes, what do you do in your other days? Right. And what he would do is tempo. And basically, for those people who don't know what tempo is, it's like third gear sprinting. It's like, I tell my guys, if we were going to do tempo, that uh, to look like a sprinter, but don't sprint fast. Uh -huh. 
um, and we're going to go a little bit longer and more often. So we don't do tempo. Uh, if it, true confession, we might actually do eight um, hundreds once, uh, where we are actually doing tempo. But basically, we it. don't. I knew it. I, I know. I'm sorry. <laughs> I do it. You, you made me oh. so relaxed that that that, <laughs> that, that I awesome. confess. That's right. okay. Yeah. That's okay. I yeah. confess. So, <laughs> so what I do instead is exercises that I call X Factor that are random. Uh, we want a s- stimulus. We we uh, I tell people if you came into an X Factor workout, you'd be disappointed. It's mostly standing around, Bang. which means. That we might do in an hour, a kid might do 20 to 25 five-second things. And people say, now wait, in the textbook it says those things are high CNS activities as well. And I don't dispute that. But we are so microdosed in that stuff that I don't think we burn the stake. I don't think we burn a fuse. Um, and if you look at the previous day when we sprinted, I think we're very microdose there. It, our entire speed workout yesterday, first day of track practice, we worked for an hour. We had 35 kids in my sprint group. And even though we worked for an hour, they truly only worked for 60 seconds. Okay. So that's like 59 minutes of standing, 60 seconds of intensity. Yeah. So when people say you're going to burn them up, you know, that that's way too much CNS activity. It's like, I don't think you understand how microdosed we are. So we are microdosed throughout all the off season, all of it. And it's only about four weeks before our first track meet that we say we need to learn how to sprint further mm-hmm. and more often, which is speed. I hate to say the E word endurance or capacity. Capacity is the number of races we could run. Speed endurance, I don't like that word. Um, you know, I, I I like to call it sprint farther. Yeah. So we learn how to do that by doing capacity workouts and lactate workouts. Yeah. When you do your X Factor drills, like are there sprints within there as well? Or, or is it is it more drill based? Or how does that look? I, it is 90 some percent drill based. Got it. Um, it is, I think, you know, like, Pogo jumps, uh, hurdle over and unders, hurdle over and overs. Um, uh, we're doing med ball throws. We're doing those exercises. The only thing that I put into X Factor that looks like sprinting are wickets. Got it. And it's kind of a stretch. We go through it seven times, full speed, but we're not spiked up, not timing. So remember I said that sprinting is hard surface, we're in spikes, and getting timed. So you would say so, it's a, between 90 and 95% velocities or? We try to go full speed. Full speed, but yeah. We're, but because we're not timing and beca- because we're, we're in soft shoes, we are not at full speed. Right. And because we're going to do like seven of them in seven minutes. Mm-hmm. And I know you do different positions as well, right? We yeah. do different positions. We go full arms on the first one, and then we do all kinds of different positions. We have about 10 to 15 different positions we do that, that, take away the soft brain, the, uh, not soft brain, but the, um, uh, a, a brain that's, that's, uh, habitual. Man. And we try to create chaos by putting like a fist up in the air, two hands high, or, you know, acting like we're shooting a pistol. And it, to me, it forces the brain to send strong, strong messages to, our legs the most important thing in sprinting our legs um and so i consider wickets a hardwiring event we are not working on bounce we're not working on snap we're not working on power um we are in uh, now we're working on big split those are my four of my five things we're working on the fifth thing there only and that's hardwiring of cns messaging to the legs and I, I learned all that from Corpus I mean he, that's that's the bizarre stuff so that's the only thing that even resembles running in our x-factor stuff and it's funny my my athletes say oh coach by far the wickets are the hardest thing we do in x-factor Damn. because if you think it's kind of like 
it is kind of like uh, seven 40-yard dashes in seven minutes. Yeah, I was going to ask you what, what your um, distance is that you choose for that as, as well for wickets. It's a great question. We, we, we want to run it. We want to get fast. So we, we start about 25 yards maybe okay. away, and then we'll go over eight wickets that are six feet apart. Sometimes, like Vince Anderson, this is cool that I laid down wickets a lot. And then I, I thought I was the only person in the world that did that. And then Vince Anderson said that he likes to lay them down. Too. Yeah. Yeah. So once again, like two people evolving on different islands uh, to the same thing. The main reason I lay them down is because I don't like for one kid to randomly knock them all down yeah. and have the other 10 laugh. Yeah. I just, I didn't like that. So we would lay them down. We can run through them both directions. So we run about 20, 25 yards in. Even if we're going to put our both hands in the air, we are full arms before we get there. Because I say that our cues are speed up, knees up. And and the other thing is we're not going over with long steps. We're going to be big in the front right. and short in the back. Right. Big in the front, short in the back. Yeah. And so my guys hear these cues just constantly, just layer upon layer of coaching. And, and then, of course, w- once you go through the wickets, it takes – if you ran in 20, you're going to run out 20. Yeah. So it may be a 50-yard, 60-yard run. And I would say I would say we probably do all seven wickets in 10 minutes. Okay. So the amount of rest is about 130. Yeah. Uh, a little over a minute, maybe. Yeah. So the rest will dictate the intensity as well a little bit. So they're – yeah, no, it's, it makes sense. I like it. For sure. Yeah. And you could almost claim that those things are um, similar to tempo running. Yeah. They yeah. really are. I, mean, I remember Joey G was talking in Florida. He's like, he's like, I do my tempos over wickets. He's like, don't be mad at me. Don't be mad at me. Yeah. Yeah. Because <laughs> yeah. if you think about it, if you're not in fifth gear and not timing and not wearing spikes, you're not sprinting. So I would say we're in third or fourth gear uh, just because of the parameters of the drill. Yeah, I actually started doing wickets on our low days recently. Um, actually, we do it with our NFL group a little bit on our on our low days, and, and they love it. Actually, we, we even do it. We even do it in a warm up, um, like pregame sometimes. Like yep. it's just it's just patterning, patterning, patterning. Um, yeah, no, I love it. I love it. Yeah, sometimes uh, Corfus does that. Uh, Corfus is one of those guys that says we don't do speed drills. They don't make you fast. Mm-hmm. And like, uh, I I still do the like the Lauren Seagrave speed drill. Sorry, that's where yeah. I coach. I, I coach during speed drills, so I have to do things right. And but he he will literally instead of doing speed drills, he will actually do wickets. Got it. So it could be a warm up as well, and I like that. What What do you think is like? I mean, you see a lot more high schoolers than I do. Um, what do you think is the biggest limiting factor to most high school athletes when they when they come into your program? The, the flippant answer would be DNA. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We, we had a kid come out yesterday that for sure had never been on a team. And, you know, he's like 5'8", and he weighed about 210. And, um, and he ran, uh, I think he ran 13 miles an hour. So... So, I mean, that's part of our population. That's part of our, now he won't make the sprint team, uh, uh, but but that's part of our population. It, and it's truly, I've never known an elite sprinter who was not elite before he met his first good coach. Right, right. Okay, I mean, I had an elite sprinter, Marcel Smore. Um, all conditions, I mean, it was wind-aided, but he ran 1040 for me as a freshman, 1040 at the age of 14. That is the world record. And um, he would have had the 200 meter, 15 year old would world record the next year, but Bolt ran faster at the age of 15. So Marcellus was a total phenom. Now, Marcellus actually broke 11 one time at nationals before he played his first freshman football game for me he was 14 then and i did take him from 4 or 11 or 10 80 something down to 10 40 but my point is that marcellus was already a phenom 
before he met me. And now I, I believe I coached him well. He was happy. He was healthy. He got faster. He loved track and field. Um, uh, yeah, I won't say what 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 his his uncle said. He said the best thing you didn't do is you didn't screw him up. Uh, and I'm like, oh, thank you. I, thanks for you know the the great comment, the compliment there. Um, but that's kind of the nature of coaching professionals or phenoms. Don't screw them up. Keep them happy, healthy. Uh, allow them to love the sport. Um, you know, allow them to make small gains. Teach them that because they're so close to a genetic ceiling that we say the speed grows like a tree and their tree is slow growing. They will not experience the kind of huge gains that some of their teammates will experience. And that's not easy. That's not easy. And it makes phenoms very challenging to coach. Yeah. So so once in a while we have a phenom, once in a while we have that kid that can barely run, and then everybody else is in between. And I would say the limiting factor, if I name two things, it would be the CNS and elasticity. Mm. It's not strength. Yeah. Weight room people would all say strength. I would say how elastic you are and how fast your CNS can fire. And can you can you train the CNS to fire faster? I mean, this is a question coming from the audience. <laughs> uh, it's one of my favorite topics, especially now, uh, especially after eating eating uh, uh, a nice meal at Papado with with you yeah. and Brian Kula. Yeah, <laughs> uh, last month, uh, where we talked about this. But but I would think that's a big hell yeah, and that is a. I mean, if, if you take one thing from this podcast, it's like, yes, you can improve the CNS. And when you improve the CNS, you improve every type of movement. Yeah. that The two stories that Kula told where he speed trained a swim group uh -huh. on land and they were horrible and they all got super, I'm not, not fast, but they all got, they improved in incredible ways. Yeah. They were improving like two or three miles an hour. And then they go out and they break 48 swim records. Yeah. Because 100%. movement is movement. And if you improve the CNS and, okay, I need to say this. What is the most extreme movement that the human body can do? Sprinting. Sprinting at full speed. Yeah. So that's how you improve the CNS. It will improve. It will grow like a tree. So you have to be super patient, play the long game two or three times a week for 10 years, and all that kind of stuff. But you and I both know that in eight to 10 weeks, you can improve an entire group by over a mile per hour. Oh yeah, for sure, for it sure. Change, for it sure. changes the athlete. And then one of my favorite things, remember you talked about that uh, elite girl golf golfer? Yeah, golfers. Yeah, That he sprint trained. Yeah. And her club speed improved by seven miles an hour. 100%. It's like you and I are looking at each other like, hell yeah, now, now we have stories to tell. And then one more crazy story. Listen to a podcast of Boo Schexnader like eight years ago, training a volleyball group by sprinting. Yeah, I was gonna say, I was gonna mention volleyballs. Yeah, hundred percent. No, nobody sprints in volleyball. Nobody runs. You take one or two steps, and so it's totally counterintuitive to sprint a volleyball player. But you and I both know that an improved CNS, a CNS that fires faster will allow a person to take one step faster. Yeah, It will allow a person to jump faster and higher. And so so you're, you're training the CNS. I wish we would stop talking about sprint training for other sports and just talk about CNS training. 100%. It's like weight room training is, is one end of the spectrum. So if I lift a max squat, that's, that's a left end of the spectrum. Sprinting is the far right end. You have to, you, you have to surf the curve but I would say most of what we need to do is produce force fast. So training to produce forces slow can be a training method and it can be have residual effects, but it's, in my opinion, it's two to three degrees away from the actual task. So if my task is moving fast, producing forces fast, I need to be on that right end of the spectrum playing around over there, especially for youth athletes. Cause a lot of the limiting factors for them is their ability to produce forces fast enough to be fast. Yes, I, I think that that's incredibly important. And then you throw in 
what takes more time? The weight, what takes more time and, and energy, the weight room or speed training? The weight room takes 90% or um, 10 times more because that sprint workout I had yesterday was 60 seconds of work and none of my guys were tired when they left. So they can still lift, but the ignoring sprinting is just, it just blows my mind. And as you and I both know, there are division one football programs oh, that yeah. ignore sprinting. We can go probably three more hours on uh, <laughs> on the division one football side of things. But at, at the same time, I'm glad they don't because it makes me look like a genius in that space because <laughs> it's simple. It's simple. It's, it gives me a job. So like, what about uh, cross country? Should they sprint? Yes. 100%. The, yeah. the, this, this is... This is something that, you know, when you're involved with thinking like this for the number of hours a day that I, I do it, I have come to the conclusion that, matter of fact, this was the name of the my TFC presentation, Let the Sport Train the Sport. Yeah. Because cross-country does not create better athletes. It creates better cross-country kids. But my question is, would you rather have a good athlete or a poor athlete in cross country? And I think we all want good athletes in every sport, whether it's golf, swimming, cross country, lacrosse, football, whatever. So now we have to define athlete. If I ask, I, I consult with a lot of uh, lacrosse programs, big time D1, one of them's in the final four last year, Princeton feeds the Tigers. And, and if I say, who are you looking for? Who are the players you recruit? They always say the same thing. Good lacrosse players, good at the game, who are fast, explosive. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. Good lacrosse, a soccer coach. Who do you recruit? Good soccer players that are fast and explosive. Football players, good football uh, football coaches, good football players who are fast and explosive. Uh, obviously, there's a size requirement too. In so football. it's, it's mind-blowing that in the development pathway, sprinting isn't one of the pillars. Like I was talking to a soccer club the other day and they're like, oh, well, we're focused on technical side of things. I'm like, well, show me the three athletes that, that went to college and tell me about them. Oh, they're fast. They're th I'm like, okay, so the fast guys will rise to the top, but why not make the other players at that level? So are you truly developing them or is their skill set that's technical? They can't even play with that skill set because they're not fast enough. That's right. And I argued... A soccer coach argued the other day that all speed training should be done with a ball. Well, that means that that girl that uh, that's running 16 miles an hour is not fast enough, is running at 10 miles an hour with a ball. Right. And that does not change the CNS. Makes her slower. It, it definitely trains them slower. Definitely trains them yep. slower. So that cross-country team, what I would suggest is is basically my pillars. Spread fast, lift heavy, jump high and far, and bounce. Those are my four pillars of athleticism. And they say, well, none of those things happen in cross country. I go, I know. That's why they need it away from cross country. 100%. Like, do you, but do you power clean on, on the cross country field? Like, no. Do you squat? No. Like, but they, they do those. I mean, I know cross country programs out there, like, by now, a lot of them have weight room programs, and they they argue with me. I say, "Well, do you, do you throw a med ball and then race?" Well, no. So, so what do you mean? You're developing qualities, developing qualities that will transfer and allow you to produce forces faster over a longer period of time. And it's not just cross. Less think about football. Football coaches. This is a mind blower. I if I talk to the entire staff at Northwestern, I would say. Do you guys realize that football does not create better athletes? <laughs> There's only one sport that does. They it it yeah. actually creates it's one of them football and basketball somewhat creates better athletes. But I would argue that there's too much left on the table. Yeah. That we my focus is this that that you could you your entire focus away from football needs to be creating better athletes. But instead, what is it? It is hard work in the weight room, grueling hard work in the weight room, and then conditioning. 
I, I talked to uh, a, a kid that was a, a D1 guy. He has a chance to, you know, get an NFL invite this year. Um, and I said, I said, Tyler, have you lost any speed? He said, Coach, I'm sure I have, but I, I don't know. Because I, I said, you never get timed? He goes, no. I go, what what do they want out of you in the offseason? said, I think they want to make my thighs bigger. And I'm like, oh, my God. And this kid is successful. This kid is a successful running back. But I guarantee this kid that was running solid 448 for me in high school would run 468 right now. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I get guys that come in and say, oh, I'm running 4-4 four, four or 4-5. Four, I'm like, okay, why? Why well, ran that in high school? And you test them and they run 4-7 post-college. I'm like, okay, so what, you know, what, what went on? You know, and like, I, I showed you what we did with Arizona. Like, guys got faster in season and it wasn't anything crazy. Like, it was very simple stuff. And you look at what some of these guys did and, and they became very, very, very good at running sub-maximally over and over and over again. Um they did not get better at accelerating or decelerating or running at top speed. Um, they did the things that they thought were, were, you know, they listened to the coach. They they bought in. They were soldiers, and they come out a worse athlete. And and it's an epidemic because you actually look at if you look at the Nike opening times from high school versus combine times, it's very 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 rare that the combine time is significantly better than their high school time. And it's been four years. And Correct. And, and you could you could argue on the timing, but let's just. If it was a timing issue, you would see like massive gaps. But you actually see like, oh, he ran a four seven in high school. He ran a four six five, and you know after college, like you're telling me in four years you developed point zero five, or sometimes it's worse. Like a lot of times, it's, I, I look at that stuff. Like I look at their junior day times, look at their high school times, and then I look at the athlete, and I'm like, you just, you're a shell of this. Like you you don't. You don't have like I, I have a guy now that ran ten three in uh, high school as a sophomore, and if you were to ask him, he would tell you he can't run, he can't run sub ten eight anymore, like nowhere near that, nowhere near it. And I think yeah, there there was a, uh, a troll on the internet um, that was actually you know, kind of a big time speed guy, and he's like, high school coaches need to stop posting that that their athletes can run twenty three miles an hour. NFL guys hardly ever hit 22. I'm like, well, first of all, that's on soft surface. Um, they're wearing 12 pounds of pads and they're tired. And also that guy, whoever you're talking about in the NFL was faster at, an early, at a yeah. younger age. I got tons of kids that run 23 miles per hour in high school, in high school. Tons, I have tons. more high school kids running 23 than I do NFL. It that is a crate my my NFL group can if they run twenty three, it is so like hard on them because of everything else that they've done. My high school kids, I can build them up to twenty three once a week. I got a kid that came at six o'clock this morning that's hitting twenty three consistently. Here's a question. Uh, I love questions. I already know the answer. Um, <laughs> who is at more danger of risk running twenty three miles an hour? Somebody training for the combine who's 22 years old or a 17-year-old? Combine. Much harder, much right. riskier. I mean, I literally have to do so much to get them ready to run that fast. They're, they're, it's shocking to them that, like, they, they run that. They run full speed, and they, we haven't run full speed since high school. And that's a, it. Think about that, where I have a 22, 23-year-old athlete telling me, like, they thought they were running full speed. But then they, we actually go and we run full speed and you rest for an entire rest period. And then you do it again a couple of times and they, and then you cut the session like that's it. I'm like, yeah. And then the next day they're like, I haven't been tired like this in a long time. And it's like, well, we did hardly any, but they're like, it's a, it's a nervous system fatigue. And then they build into it and then they can handle more. And then all of a sudden they feel fresh, but it's so shocking to them. Whereas my high school kids, like I can go, like my kid ran 23 on Monday came back it's wednesday we did our second session on friday we'll have our third session and each each of those sessions will hit within 95 percent of his speed and be fine i don't know this is your podcast but i, I have so many questions uh, <laughs> you know really impressive what you did at arizona and and what i love is you went into a program that was uh in the basement 
I mean, like Arizona was was not a power, mm-hmm. and they. I would love to talk to their staff. The fact that they were open to these new ideas, and you say they got they sprinted in season. Yeah, and we both know that TCU sprinted in season. Yeah, we can talk about that too. Uh, but and they got faster because sprinting requires timing. Yeah, if you're not timing, you're not sprinting. What percentage of NCAA football teams are doing that? I would. It, it's tough. I I don't know many. Like <laughs> I could tell you, I could tell you the ones that do, and it's five or six. Five or six total that you know do, and that's that's more than I know. That's more than I know. Yeah, yeah, five or six. I think it's starting, like, I mean, especially the TCU effect, like, you know, them getting there. We, we also have Max Duggan here training with us, and uh, we also have Mike Morris, who was at Michigan. And, you know, I'm able to talk. Every time a guy's come, I talk to them, like, what was your training like? Well, TCU's was, like, track practice. So when Max came in, he played, he played the, you know, in the game, like, I don't know how many days ago, a couple of days ago. He trained yesterday. I go, Max, like, um, we're going to take it easy. Uh, you know, we're going to kind of build in, build your volume. You haven't sprinted. He's like, fuck no, I've been sprinting. Like, let's go. And he and he was building up to top speed on his second day. No worries at all. Because I, I talked to Kyle. I said, Kyle, is he good? Yeah, you know, he's fine. Whereas like uh, other players coming from other programs, we have to do a whole GPP period to get them ready to sprint. So, and, and like, I can tell guys that are sprinting, like I know last year at Oregon, they, they sprinted. Because uh, I was talking to, you know, DJ Johnson came and trained with us. First day, he's running full speed. Cool. You know? Um, so then you talk to other guys and you're like, they're like, man, like, I, I, I got to I gotta really, like, build into it. Like, a, even you, you see their governor on, like, when they're running, they, like, they get up to a speed and they stop. Because I do this drill um, every max speed session where I just, I give them four opportunities to build up every step to hit a new, to, to hit a top speed, essentially. Take as much space as you want and just go and build up and hit a top speed. And a couple of the players won't even allow themselves. They'll, they'll get to 20 yards and they'll like pull back and they'll be like, I don't, I don't know. It's like, you can, you can do it. I, oh, I might get hurt. You're not, you're fine. You're fine. Like you can build up and hit a top speed. So it takes a while to get into it. But I think there's a couple of programs. There's more now. They're starting to, to buy in, but then it's like, well, what do we do? And it's, it's all starts with what you, what you talk about is record, rank and publish because that's really all we did is like, oh, that guy beat me and he's in my position group. Okay. Next week I'm gonna run harder or he, okay. This guy in the other position group beat me. Okay, cool. Record, rank, publish, then work backwards to just look at the concepts, like just hit a tops near top speed at least once a week was just start with that concept. And then yep. you can start adding in because TCU did two or three sessions and we started adding in more sessions. Like at first, if you don't have buy-in, start with one, then get two. And then, you know, if you need it, you, sometimes you don't need three, but uh, especially right. in season, but because right. uh, your, your game is the third. If you you really want your games to be your, like all the peak speeds that we had happen, most of them happen in a game, which is perfect, you know, because we microdosed it the right way so that when they got to the game, they had enough in the tank and they were ready to go. We didn't overcook them like you talk about. We didn't burn the steak. So they were, they felt fresh. They were fast. We even potentiate the day of a game. Yeah. Like oh. you sprint the day of a, like what? Yes. <laughs> like yeah. go out there, sprint, do jumps, get the nervous system fired up. The day before a game, do you sprint? Believe it or not. Yeah. We, we built up to 90% top speed the day before a game. People are like, that's crazy. I'm like, your body can handle one to two efforts up to 90%. Squat every day, they, you do a little bit every day. Sprint, you do a little bit every There's There is always, like um, TCU, they call it, you always run hot. So running hot means like when you're a kid, you're running around and you could, at any point in the day, you could just run full speed. Did you warm up? Did you stretch? No, but your body was running hot which meant when we were younger, our nervous systems were primed and ready to go at all times. Like I remember playing pickup basketball, jumping into a full court game. Like I wasn't worried about Achilles and knee blowing out. It's like, <laughs> so what happens over the years is our, our nervous system becomes depressed. And when it, when it gets to the point where I have to produce forces as fast as my body's telling me to, and I can't, something happens, a tear, a rupture. But our guys are always running hot. So we, we, we train them this way during combine training actually because we have micro sessions throughout the day 
I train them twice in, in two speed sessions in a day. People are like, well, how do you do that? I'm like, well, the first session, I don't talk. I let them warm up. I let them do a couple runs, a couple resisted runs, a couple jumps, and we go home. It's an hour from beginning to end. Then we come back and I talk and we do starts and we do a little bit more work. And then we go to the weight room. It's not complicated, but you can, you can do these things. You just have to have the confidence um, that weight room coaches have confidence you can lift every day. Well, there's some type of running, uh, sprinting, and there's some type of adaptation you can get out of every day. So, but yeah, I could go on for hours on that. <laughs> oh, there's so many hours. things. You know, you talked about game day. I first heard of something like this with Jimmy Ratcliffe, who was a TFC speaker, yeah, you know, Mr. Biometrics. Yeah, great, great, great. And, you know, and he tried to do a high CNS thing in the weight room. He did like one set of snatches on day of a game to prep. And so that kind of gave me the idea that, holy cow, if that was good, how about our short speed workout the day of a game? Yeah. And and I'm thinking, you know, if a kid got, does less than 60 seconds of work and you feel better after the workout than you felt before, doesn't that qualify as the greatest warm-up of all times? 100%. 100%. And so we actually have some high school football programs now, Feed the Cats programs, that are not only doing my atomic speed workout, which is 10 speed drills and two time sprints, not only doing it instead of their BS warm up that they used to do, but they're actually doing it on game day. And it's like, that sounds great. And the other thing, I think that, that sports in America was set back, you know, terribly by the idea of periodization where we had periods of time that performance did not matter. And, you know, I'm like the anti, the anti-periodization guy who says, what, what I say is never drift from a state of performance. Yeah, It goes right along with what you're talking about with little kids. Yeah. They're able to sprint at the drop of a hat. Whereas you have these future multi-million dollar athletes that you're working with who can't because yeah. they have drifted. Some of them have drifted for four freaking years of college football away from a state of sprint performance. Now, they maybe arguably were in a state of football performance for most of that time. Yeah. But you cannot go three months, six months, and say, oh, I'm going to do this lift. This is a hypertrophy stage for six months because you drifted from a state of performance. Yeah, from that quality. Yeah, it's a vertical integration model. And like borrowing from weightlifting and things like that in powerlifting for for running-based sports was was a mistake. And, and some, I mean, there, obviously there's some positive things from it, but yeah, like you, you, you could do that in powerlifting, like, because in the end, like you're, you're trying to get a maximal output, um, you know, further down the line. So building and growing in, in the hypertrophy phase and the strength phase and the power, you could do that. Sprinting, you can't, you have to stay vertically integrated. And that's the biggest thing I learned from Charlie is like keeping it in there, running hot. What, what does that mean? Is Vertical integration. Yeah. What does that mean? It means all things are present at all times. So I don't, oh. when I'm doing strength, speed is present, but things take different emphasis at different time periods. So like you mentioned, you, you do uh, speed endurance runs at certain capacity type stuff. Now, it, there's probably some type of capacity at all times, but you probably put more emphasis on it on certain blocks and then you pull back on other blocks. So you're just pulling levers like, oh, strength takes that priority, speed takes priority, power, like, you just, if you have six different qualities, maybe technique takes a big emphasis. Like when you, when you first start the day one practice, like what does that look like? So yeah, that's, that's vertically integrated. But yeah, this is, man, Tony, we got to get on at least like once every two weeks because this is, uh, this is powerful. This is really, really, and I think it's going to help a lot of people too. Just having us having conversations on this stuff. I think it's going to be really good. Fun stuff, man. It's a lot of fun. Let's get another one on the books because we should, we should take like, this is part one, part two, we got, we should start diving into a lot of the myths around like what people are thinking and then get really like, I mean, like a little controversial, like why not, like you might as well just dive in and see like, um, like I'll, I'll prepare some questions that are a little controversial and I think we should dive in part two. 
I'll prepare some too. Perfect. I'm good at being controversial. <laughs> no, I know. Um, yeah, I love it. I'm kind of surprised that you are though, Les, because you're such a nice guy. Yeah, but like but you, you enjoy stirring it up. Yeah, I don't mind. Like I got because I don't fear. I, you know, I grew up a fighter. You know, I grew up a boxer. And before I box, I I try to fight. You know, without having much skill. And then, you know, what I'm not afraid of um, difficult conversations, and I'm not afraid of challenging. Because I, I think right now, like when I see people like the guy you mentioned, who I, I have no respect for, as as it, and I, it's very hard for me to say, I will fire back. I don't like when people. I love the challenges and I love the chatter. What I don't like is deception, or or I, what I don't like is manipulation or gaslighting. What I don't like is you need to do this. I never present things like that. Here's something that I do. I'm going to share it. But when you say you need to do this or you're doing this wrong or something like that, now that becomes disrespectful. Let's um, let's hop on for part two soon. Let's, let's definitely okay. do that. That was good, Les. No, I appreciate you. Thank you so much, Tony. And enjoy your sunny day. No, it's not sunny, but <laughs> yeah, thank you. Thank you for listening to the Les Bowman podcast. If you do me two massive favors, first, please rate the podcast and give it five stars if you enjoyed. If you didn't enjoy it, please still give me five stars. <laughs> Second, please share this podcast with another coach, an athlete, or a parent who wants to learn how speed is developed. Thanks again for listening and check out the podcast description to learn more.